listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. indeed welcome to the show this is the fret files once again my name is eric daw and uh this is the uh world's the universe's premier guitar repair podcast in the universe that's right and uh this is a landmark episode this is our 20th episode did you know that no i didn't that's wow yeah this is my lovely wife melissa she co-hosts the show with me usually hello everyone and in the background you can probably hear our t- teeny tiny little baby fussing maybe not yeah we have a newborn baby so uh this may be a truncated 20th uh uh episode he's uh, crying is escalating quickly yes yeah but uh, I don't know. I might be doing this podcast by myself, and maybe I don't know. We'll, we'll see what we'll see how this goes. Should we go uh, check on the youngin? Yeah, I think okay. so. Pause. Uh, yeah. Well, you go ahead, and I'll uh, I'll talk to the fine people here. Uh, if you want to participate in the show, the best way to do that is to go to my website. That's ericdaw.com, E R I C D A W. If you listen to the show often, you get sick of hearing me say that. But hey. That's how it works. Go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, send me your question or comment there, and I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call. You can leave a voicemail, uh, 757-774-8482. You can call any time of night or day because it's just a, uh, a voicemail. Yeah. And uh, you can also text that number as well, 757-774-8482. I'd really appreciate it if you'd participate in the show. I know there's a lot of people that listen. I see the numbers. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to tell you the numbers, but there's a lot of people that listen, and I know that maybe, I don't know, 5% of the listeners participate, which is fine. You know, that's good, but uh, the more questions I get, the more interesting the show is going to be and if i start getting enough questions i'm going to maybe try to make this a uh, a more frequent podcast been doing this for two years and i've done 20 episodes i shoot for one a month but clearly i have not uh, quite made that uh, but yeah there's been a few months where we took off but yeah two years 20 episodes Thanks for listening, guys. It's it's been a lot of fun. I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, let's dive right in to the questions. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Well, usually Melissa reads these questions, but I don't know if she's gonna. I don't know if she's gonna be here much for this episode. I think she's uh, she's got baby baby issues. She's taken care of, right? So I'll read the questions if she wants. If she can join me in the podcast later, I'm sure she will. But I'd rather just get the podcast going rather than wait for a uh, a lull in the baby storm. So we'll just carry on. Letter number one. Hi, Eric and Melissa. I just discovered your podcast, and I can't tell you how happy I am to have found you. I have been searching for a podcast just like yours for months now. Thank you for your warm, friendly approach and excellent information and tips. I just listened to episode 19 in which Melissa mentioned something about wanting to get a female guitar tech in the house. Well, here I am. (laughs) Just kidding, of course. I'm certainly not the only one. I hope not. That's my aside. 
Continuing on. I build and repair electric guitars and basses in Gainesville, Florida. This year is my first year of real public business. Prior to this year, I worked for beer money on my own friends and bandmates guitars, basically with a lot of help from Stu Mac's website, Dan Erlewine's books, YouTube, advice from a few local guys, and various builders' forums like reranch.com. Right now my work is part-time and freelance because I'm also a grad student. I don't know if it's in my future to have my own shop, but I still want to do high-quality professional work even if I only work on a few instruments per week. My question is... What other resources would you recommend for someone in my position to continue learning and improving? I absolutely love working on guitars. I love it almost more than playing. Unfortunately, I've been turned down a little harshly, I might add, by the only other local shop that does stringed instrument repair when I inquired about an an apprenticeship. The only other option is Guitar Center, but I don't have the time or inclination to work there. I've also found that some male guitar players... Definitely not all, but some can be somewhat resistant to the idea of a woman working on their instruments. I haven't experienced anyone being an outright jerk, but I have had some awkward encounters meeting clients who found me on Craigslist and had obviously assumed I was male. Anyway, any tips or advice from you both are wholeheartedly appreciated. Thanks again for the fantastic podcast. That's from Maria Carter in Gainesville, Florida. Maria, thanks so much for listening. I'm glad you found us too, and I really... I'm just happy that you like the show. Um, It's listeners like you that keep us going. Uh, And, you know, I I know quite a few, I don't know if it's just a Seattle thing, but I know quite a few female guitar techs. I work with one pretty closely there at Emerald City Guitars. You know, I do, uh, basically, we split it up this way. I do all of the customer repairs. And then Liz my coworker down there, she does pretty much all the in-house stuff and a lot of light, you know, setups and restrings and stuff because she's also working the sales floor. So we kind of split it up like that. And she does great work. She's, gosh, she's been in the business for a long time. And uh, I respect the living tar out of her. And there's a few other female guitar techs in Seattle that I've met as well. So it's not as uncommon as you might think. You know, I mean, uh, I know that Liz has had a few times where she's had dudes. I, it's it's a dude-centric business, I admit, you know, not not just guitar tech, but guitar shops in general. There's been a few times where customers have called and poor Liz has, has answered the phone and some surly doofus on the other end of the phone tells her something like, can I just talk to one of the guys? Well, don't treat girls like that, guys. Because <laughs> Liz knows her stuff. Oh, my gosh. You'd think that they'd want to talk to a, a, a female that knew her stuff. Why not, right? Anyway, that's aside, beside the point. Uh, your question is, what other resources would you recommend continue learning and improving. You know, it sounds like you're tapping into uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the things that I do recommend. So, um, keep doing that. There is definitely occasionally a, uh, a class given, you know, somewhere. You might have to travel a little bit. But I've seen a lot of small colleges and community colleges that have... Uh, little guitar building and and guitar repair courses. So you might look into that. And then, of course, there's schools like Roberto Venn, which is a a little more of a uh, a commitment and and certainly a lot more money and a lot more travel. So uh, that might be out of the question for you. But um, I've got another letter here that's kind of on a similar note. So before I answer your question any further, I'll read this one. Hi, Eric. My name is Chad Gerby, and I'm a guitar tech out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, working at a very busy store called N Stuff Music, (laughs) formerly Pianos N Stuff. So I guess they dropped the pianos, huh? It just became N Stuff, N, like the letter N Stuff, N Stuff Music. 
We are a, fir- we are a full-service shop celebrating almost 50 years in the business. I've been here for about four years after I graduated from the Gallup School of Luthery in Michigan. So there's another, there's another Luthery school for you. The Gallup School of Luthery in Michigan. I'm also doing setups and final inspections for John Page Classic Guitars. So I'm certainly staying busy living the dream. My question for you is, what are some of your favorite guitar repair educational resources? Any favorite books, websites, DVDs, etc.? Your podcast has been one of my favorite resources, and I look forward to hearing about where you picked up some of your tricks of the trade. Thanks again for all the great work. That's Chad Gerby in Pittsburgh. Chad's got the same question. You know, um, probably my favorite book is uh, The Guitar Player Repair Guide by Dan Erlewine. I know I've mentioned that before, and uh, Maria alluded to it in her question, uh, but any book by Dan Erlewine is great, and he does DVD series uh, through Stu Mac, Stuart MacDonald. Um, But there's a few other books that I've got that I've really enjoyed. The Complete Guitar Repair book by Hideo Kamimoto. H-I-D-E-O Kamimoto K-A-M-I-M-O-T-O The Complete Guitar Repair I think it's just called Complete Guitar Repair by Hideo Kamimoto and uh, there's a few different editions of it. Mine is I think the first edition. I'd love to see um, a more recent edition of it. I think the latest pressing was in the 90s. The latest printing was in the 90s but that's a cool book. The other one that's really interesting is the acoustic guitar adjustment care maintenance and repair by Don Teeter T E E T O R Don Teeter no T E E T E R yeah Don Teeter uh, really a fascinating book he's got super unorthodox methods a lot of it um well not a lot of it but some of it kind of would be frowned upon nowadays, I think. He's got some crazy methods. I know that he he does things like uh, uses epoxy to put frets in and does a few kind of wacky things, but um, there's a lot of really useful information in the book, and um, it's really an interesting read just to see what somebody who thinks outside the box does. And uh, he was kind of a pioneer in in acoustic guitar repair. I think I think his was maybe one of the first big books that came out about acoustic guitar repair. It really was the Bible before anybody like Dan Erlewine came along. Uh, I, I think that that book goes back to the 70s. And so it's, you know, if nothing else, it's really interesting reading uh, as a historical document, but there's definitely a lot of good information in there that's still good and useful. But... Um, don't don't uh don't attempt some of the things he when you read it you'll you'll know what i'm talking about some of the things he does are a, a little questionable but uh only by today's standards i don't know that's my opinion uh you may disagree uh there's obviously the internet is an amazing resource that i just didn't have when i got into the business i i started repairing guitars in the 90s and uh the internet was just a baby back then but um you know there's amazing youtube is full of of guitar repair videos uh and then there's websites like frets.com and there's forums luthier forums and facebook luthier groups are fun you know if you can if uh if find those i belong to a few of those and and uh, i don't even know what what they're called but it's they're easy to find and the nice thing about that is you can uh get some pretty immediate response from people you know a, a luthier group on facebook that has a lot of members you you type a question in there that maybe you you, you need some help with and uh boy, you could get some pretty instant feedback because there's other other people hanging out on facebook so that's that's kind of a cool resource but yeah those are some uh just some things i brainstormed for you guys but um the, the best teacher is experience and uh, I think that that's always going to be true. Next letter. Hi, Eric. Great show. 
I play Fender Jazzmasters, and I like swapping out the bridge for the Mustang-style bridge, as you've previously discussed. My question is about how the bridge rocks back and forth. I assume that this is entirely by design, and that the bridge is supposed to rock back and forth as you use the tremolo to help keep it in tune. Does this work as it is supposed to, or is it better to wrap tape or something around the bridge posts to keep it rock from rocking back and forth, and just let the strings slide through the saddle grooves as you use the tram? What do you say, Leo in Memphis? Leo, that's a great question, man, and it's um definitely that's how they're designed. Uh, Jazz masters, if you're if you've listened to the show for long, you know that I'm not the craziest uh, uh, fan of of jazz masters. I love Fender guitars, and I, I you know jazz masters are cool, but they do have some quirks, and that's one of them. That bridge moves when you use the tremolo. I'm I don't like it. I like to secure it so that so that it doesn't move. The problem that I've found on it is that the bridge has a tendency, because the strings are slightly pushing forward on it, the bridge has a tendency to end up uh, tilting all the way forward towards the bridge pickup. And so, you know, y- you intonate the guitar, and then the bridge never quite ends up in the same place that it was when you intonated it, and it just causes problems. So I like to secure it so that it won't move, and my favorite way of doing that is really simple. Um, I've found that your average Bic pen uh, fits inside those holes just perfectly. So there's there's two holes in the body of the Jazzmaster with metal kind of thimbles, kind of metal receptacles that accept the posts of the bridge. And just by some stroke of luck and fate, your average ballpoint pen, if you take it apart and just use the tube part, the outer diameter of the tube just fits perfectly inside that receptacle, and the inside of the tube fits the uh, bridge post just perfectly. It's really a stroke of luck, you know, it's really makes life easy when you're working on a jazz master and you want to secure the bridge just take a ballpoint pen take it apart cut up the tube you just want to use you know little half inch sections of of uh of the the tube from the pen and uh that's my favorite way to secure the bridge you mentioned wrapping tape around it or something uh, you can do that but it's kind of unprofessional and why when you can just reach in the drunk junk drawer and pull out a pen, right? That's my favorite uh, way to secure those. So that's what I would recommend. Leo, thanks for the question. Next up, hello, Eric and Melissa. I think the guitars I build have a problem with feedback. When I'm playing and trying to generate that sweet feedback that fades in when I leave a note ringing, I don't get that kind of feedback. What I get instead is a feedback that doesn't fade in. It starts to feedback drastically and immediately, and if I mute the strings, it continues. It does not sound right to me. On one of the guitars, I have a Seymour Duncan JB4 on the bridge and a Seymour Duncan SH2. What the hell is this? Another question, I'm reading and hearing about DC resistance in pickups, and the sources I've read say that it actually tells you very little about the pickup's output and tone, and is therefore not a very useful spec. So why does every pickup company use this value in the pickup's description, or in comparisons between pickups? Thank you, Daniel from Portugal. Well, all the way from Portugal. Right on, Daniel. Thanks for submitting a question. On your first question, uh, the feedback... You know, to me, it sounds like you've got pickup problems unless you're talking about, well, there's a few options. There's a few variables, and I just don't know because I don't have enough information with your question. But if the guitar is hollow, then that might be part of the problem. Uh, Hollow guitars will have a problem with feedback. Um, But I'm assuming they're solid-body electric guitars, so uh, it sounds to me like you've got 
pickup problems. Um, there's a few things that go wrong on your standard humbucker pickup. Uh, if it has covers, you know, the metal, chrome, or nickel cover, uh, if those come loose at all, your pickup basically turns into a microphone. Uh, those covers are really, really notorious for causing squeal feedback. So um, next time that happens, just put your finger on the cover of the pickup and see if it goes away. If they don't have covers, it could be that the coil is coming loose and uh, is able to feedback and vibrate. Or it could be that your base plates are coming loose. You know, there's your standard humbucker pickup has four little brass screws that hold the bobbin tight to the base plate, the metal base plate, and if those come loose, it can feed back. So uh, make sure that everything's tight, and um, if it's the uh, if it's the squealing feedback that's caused by either a loose cover or loose coils, you'll have to wax pot the pickups. That's the best way to fix that. Um, Alternately, if it's the covers, a lot of people do this. You can just take off a chrome humbucker cover, take it off of the pickup. It's usually soldered on on the bottom. There's two uh, there's two places where it's soldered on. You can take that off. You can you can either cut through the solder or you can heat it up and desolder it. Take it off and just put a piece of masking tape on the underside of the inside of the pickup cover and that'll that'll do just enough to keep it from vibrating and you put it back on make sure it's nice and tight and solder it back on that's kind of a nice uh, solution because you don't have to pot the entire pickup if you do it that way but either way you can you can pot the pickup you can you can take the cover off entirely and just leave it off if if that's the culprit you know i don't i don't have enough information here to really say definitively what what your problem is, but there's there's a few ideas for you. Let's see. The second question was... I better just read it again. Uh, I'm reading and hearing about DC resistance in pickups, and the sources I've read say that it actually tells you very little about the pickup's output and tone, and is therefore not a very useful spec. So why does every pickup company use this value in the pickup's description or in comparison between pickups? Well, you know... That's an interesting question. I'll tell you what. Uh, it depends. That's the answer. It really depends on what kind of pickups you're talking about. If we're talking about Strat pickups, and we're just talking only about Strat pickups, then DC res- resistance is a really useful thing to know. Um, if we're talking about similar pickups that have... Uh, the same magnet, say, you know, Strat pickups with Alnico 5 magnets made with the same magnet wire, then DC resistance is is very useful. But if we're comparing a Strat pickup to a Dan Electro lipstick tube pickup, then DC resistance isn't really going to tell us a whole lot because they're different designs. But if we're going to compare two of the same kind of pickup, like a P90 compared to a P90, DC resistance tells you a lot. So um, it really just depends, you know. Uh, That's really the point. Uh, The more winds the pickup has, the higher the number it's going to read on the meter, and that's in ohms, right? So we're talking about DC resistance. It's measured in ohms. And when we're talking about pickups, it's thousands of ohms. Your average Strat pickup is going to be, you know, five or six thousand ohms. That's usually written like 5K ohms or 5.8K ohms or whatever it is. And so if you've got two identical Strat pickups, but they have different readings, DC resistance readings, well, then you know that one has more windings on the coil, the one with the higher reading has more windings on the coil. And more windings on the coil means that uh, it's going to have 
kind of a, a punchier. Uh, it's going to be a hotter pickup. It's going to have um, as as you want as you wind more and more winds on the coil, you lose high end, and you you kind of gain mid range and growl. You know, so um, it actually tells you a lot. I mean, if you're going to put three pickups in your Strat, and you know that you know the DC reading on each pickup, then you want to put the hot one in the bridge position. Uh, so it's actually re- really useful. So like I say, it just depends. Um, I've heard that before that where people say, well, DC resistance doesn't really tell you anything. And I just disagree. It it does tell you plenty, but only if you're comparing apples to apples. Once you compare apples to oranges, sure, it. I guess it doesn't really tell you much, does it? But Daniel, thanks for the question. Next up here. Hi, Eric. Thanks for all of your hard work on the podcast. It is both appreciated and enjoyed. I have a couple of requests and questions. Could you talk a little bit about materials used for bridge pins, saddles, and nuts for acoustic guitars? Is there really any tonal advantage to using bone bridge pins if the saddle and nut are made from other materials? Secondly, could you discuss how to properly set up the bridge for a vintage Dan Electro? Specifically, I have a 58 Silvertone U2. I'm very happy with my current setup, but it was due to luck and not knowledge. That's from Gary Martin in New York. Or Marlin, Gary Marlin in New York. Gary, those are two great questions. First of all, the um, vintage Dan Electro bridge, that they're a, they're a really simple bridge. Um, there's three screws. One screw sits behind the saddle, and then two screws off to the side uh, of the saddle. And probably the biggest mistake I see people make with those is they don't realize that um, the rear screw, the screw that goes behind the saddle, goes through the bridge, and the other two screws get screwed onto the guitar first and then the bridge just sits on top of those and a lot of people mess that up they in trying to assemble it or trying to dial it in you know they'll take it off and clean it or whatever and then they'll put the bridge on and then put all three screws on and can't figure out what in the heck is going on with it well that's the biggest mistake i see kind of an unusual bridge that it sits on those two screws that are off to the side of the saddle and then the screw in the back controls the tilt um, from the back end. So, But it's a really simple bridge. Once you get that accomplished, the height is adjusted from the two outer screws off to the side of the saddle. And then um, intonation is adjusted by sliding that little rosewood popsicle stick, you know, back and forth and where you need it. And then it's got a screw underneath to tighten it down uh, once you get it where you need it to be. And usually what you want to do is get it get it just tight enough so that it will move um, when you force it uh, so that you can just put it all together, intonate it by sliding the saddle, and the screw is tight enough so that the saddle won't move on its own. Really a simple bridge. It's uh, uh, not, not much else to it. I can't even think of anything else to say about it other than you know, when you go to intonate it, what I like to do is I, I'll intonate the A and the B string. That way you're only one string away from being perfectly in tune. A lot of people will intonate the outer E strings, and uh, then by the time you get into the D and the G string, they're, they're pretty far out of whack. So intonate the A and the B strings to get your intonation. And that, yeah, other than that, there's not a whole lot to say about the thing. Really, just about probably the simplest bridge out there, aside from uh, the wraparound Les Paul bridge, or the wraparound Gibson bridge. Uh, his other question Is there really any tonal advantage to using bone bridge pins? Well, you know, this is another one of those. This is another one of those guitar tone rabbit holes. <laughs> and uh, 
anybody that wants to uh, look into it for themselves, you know, if you look around on the internet at all about this, you will see every opinion under the sun about it. Ranging from, you know, especially if you look at the forums about guitars, uh, you'll see people say, I've been playing guitar for 30 years, and I, I know that bridge pins make a huge difference, and you have to use such and such bridge pin, you have to use bone, or you have to use, you know, fossilized ivory, whatever it is. And then you'll see a post from a guy that says, well, I've been playing for 35 years, and I'm here to tell you that there's no difference between plastic and bone bridge pins. So it's kind of like the capacitor debate, or, you know, top loader tellies versus string through the body tellies. Everybody's got a different opinion. There does not seem to be any uh, consensus about if it makes a difference and why, and if it does make a difference, what kind of difference. I'll tell you my opinion. My opinion uh, is, well, let me read you this first. Uh, this is from a website that sells bridge pins. So you can imagine what they might think about it, right? This I'm, I was going to tell you the website, but I think I'll keep that to myself. I don't want to get in too much trouble. But this is from a website that sells bridge pins. It says, Most guitars come equipped with standard plastic bridge pins. The job of the bridge pin is to hold the string in place at the bridge. And while plastic pins get the job done, there are several other materials that can greatly improve your guitar's tone. Bone, ebony, fossilized walrus ivory, mammoth ivory, walrus jawbone, and buffalo horn are just some of the better pins on the market today. Some of the improvements you can expect from a bridge pin upgrade are increased sustain, more clarity, and overall volume. Depending on which material you choose, <clears throat> you can also steer your guitar towards more bass or more treble. When using plastic as a reference, I would describe the different bridge pins like this. Tusk can add a moderate amount of treble, sustain, clarity, and volume to your Martin. Bone offers everything Tusk provides, but in bigger doses. Ebony can add bass and warmth to your Martin, along with a significant increase in sustain and volume. Buffalo horn sounds almost identical to bone and is a great choice if you want a dark-looking pin with a bone tone. Walrus jawbone offers the fundamental tone of bone, but with better overtones and fatter harmonics. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. I just... I mean, I'd love to see this guy's research. You know, I mean, did, you have, did you have a clipboard and a and a? Uh, I mean, why, uh, mammoth ivory can add sustain, volume, and a transparent richness to your guitar with an increase in harmonics and overtones. Walrus ivory provides the greatest increase in volume, sustain, and clarity among all the pin choices. Some high-end guitars actually ship with fossilized walrus ivory as standard equipment. Changing your bridge pins can be a fun experiment, and with the exception of fossilized walrus ivory, it's a relatively inexpensive one. The only modification that can change your sound more dramatically is a change in saddle material, which is also a good idea. That I agree with. Tusk, bone, buffalo horn, mammoth ivory and fossilized walrus ivory are also excellent saddle materials, and the above tonal descriptions are also true for saddles when compared to plastic and micarta. Whether you're looking for that extra bit of tone or just plain curious, take the plunge and see what you come up with. Your guitar just might surprise you. Well, I, you know, I'm... I just don't think it's going to make that big of a difference. A nut material and saddle material make a difference. Um, more importantly, the fit of your saddle makes a difference. It needs to be tight in the slot. The, the nut as well it needs to be properly cut and needs to fit right. Uh, bridge pins, what do they do? So bridge pins really it's, are just a, a, a wedge. They're, they're a conical wedge that sit in the holes 
and keep your guitar string from popping out. And it keeps the ball end, it keeps pressure on the ball end of, of, of the string so that the ball end is, is uh, making contact with your, uh, with your bridge plate or your bridge pad. And that's all a bridge pin is doing. So it's, in that sense, it's really not in the string path. The, the tone is happening where the ball end is, is pulling on the guitar, you know? It's, it's making contact with the bridge plate. Um, so does it make a difference? Yeah, it might make a, a tiny, tiny bit of difference that the human ear probably can't hear. I don't know. I, it, it's not something that uh, I've sat down and spent a whole lot of time with, but I've never sat down with a guitar and said, Wow! This guitar sounds different. What kind of bridge pins does it have? Um, and I've certainly swapped out bridge pins on guitars before, and my guitar didn't surprise me. You know, I, I like fancy bridge pins. I like ebony. I like bone. I really do, um, because they're nicer materials than plastic. You know, that's that's really the, the important thing to me. Um, you know, and I like nice accessories on my guitar it's especially for how affordable it is to get i I think i sell bone bridge pins down at uh, emerald city guitars i think they're 20 or 24 bucks for a for a pack of six and it comes with an end pin also um so that yeah they're really nice they look nice they're cool they're better than plastic because plastic is plastic right but i just don't think they make a significant tone difference maybe if you've got just supersonic, unbelievably amazing hearing. But I just doubt it, guys. I really doubt it. It's just one of those... I, you know, look, you know me, right? This is my this is my default position on anything. <laughs> like, uh, everything is a scam until proven otherwise. Now, this guy that told us all about how different all these bridge pins sound, guess what? He does. He sells bridge pins. Now, how come the only place that I find such detailed information about how all the different bridge pins sound is from guys that are selling them? You know, think about that. And of course, high-end guitars come with high-end bridge pins. If they came with crappy plastic bridge pins, people would complain. So, that's really, that's where I'm at with it. I just don't think it makes a big difference. Saddle and nut and you know there's a lot of things that make a difference i mean just how you uh, just how you pluck the string is going to make a way bigger difference than any any difference happening between plastic and bone bridge pins but that's my opinion you know if you disagree write me a letter i'd love i'd love to hear from you i really would uh i'd love to be wrong about something like this i really would honestly Honestly, I w- I'd love to be proven wrong about something uh, that I say on the podcast. So if you think you can sway me, you know, by all means, do it. Um, but, you, you know, like I say, if you research this on the Internet, you will see every opinion under the sun. There doesn't seem to be a consensus. So my opinion is just one more in a sea of noise. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back. And... Uh, Maybe uh, maybe I can get Melissa to join me for the end here. We'll see. Stick around. This is Jay Boone, owner of Emerald City Guitars in downtown Seattle, the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers, not only on the West Coast but around the world. As we embark on our 20th year of business down here in Pioneer Square, we are striving to continue to bring you great service and great products. We're remodeling our whole store this year, and it's going to be amazing. We're also redoing our website, emeraldcityguitars.com, for our online customers around the world. We'd like to give a big shout-out of appreciation for all your patronage over all the years down here at Emerald City Guitars, and we really strive to continue to bring the best that we can to our customers. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com or visit our shop at 83 South Washington Street in downtown Seattle. Our business line is 206-382-0231, and we're open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Remember, Emerald City Guitars... 
the best source for vintage guitars and amplifiers and service and repair. You know, I don't know if you know this, but my wife makes incredible leather goods, specifically guitar straps. She makes hand-tooled, amazing guitar straps, and she's sitting right here looking embarrassed. Thank you for saying that they're beautiful. And um, if you want to check out my guitar straps, you can head over to melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. And that will direct you straight to my Etsy site, where, if you so wish, you can purchase and receive a beautiful, handmade, made-to-order guitar strap from yours truly. Do you take custom orders? I do. They're beautiful. You have to see them. MelcoLeather.com. Right? Right. Uh, As I make guitars, you know, we share a shop in the backyard there. As I'm making guitars, she's sitting in the other corner making straps, and I see her make these straps. She's so meticulous and so gifted. And Thanks. You're such a craftsman. Craftswoman? You're such a crafty person. <laughs> you're so crafty. <laughs> uh, really high quality leather, handmade leather guitar straps. Check them out. MelcoLeather.com One more thing I wanted to add about bridge pins, you know, a lot of a lot of acoustic guitars, once you get them strung up to pitch, you can actually slip out the bridge pins and the and the string will stay in place. So with no bridge pin, do you think there'll be a difference? Versus having a bridge pin versus having a bone bridge pin or I I just don't see it making a difference. Here's an experiment somebody should do. Maybe I'll do this in my spare time when I have some in in 50 years. Uh, take your acoustic guitar and put um, three bridge pins that are plastic and three bone bridge pins and compare them. You know, you could even go so far as to put... Um, uh, the same strings on. So, you know, put six E strings on, six high E strings. And then put some plastic bridge pins in and some bone bridge pins. See if you hear a difference. If you if you do any experimentation like that, uh, or if you have, uh, drop me a line. Let me know. Or drop me any kind of a line. You know, if you want to participate in the podcast, like I said at the top of the show, go to ericdaw.com. E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click the contact link. Send me a message there. While you're there, I mean, you might as well poke around my website. You know I make guitars, right? They're called Pinup Custom Guitars. Pinup, like Pinup Girl, you know, P-I-N-U-P, Pinup. Uh, you can get to my pinup custom guitars site from there. Uh, I do custom pickups. I make custom pickups. I will rewind and repair your pickups. I specialize in restoring vintage pickups to spec. So, yeah. Check out my website there. And while you're there, say hello. Drop me a line. Send me a question or comment for the podcast, and I'll use it as part of the show. Just like this one here. Hey, Eric, I'm a beginner builder starting at Raw Lumber. Since my previous experience was setting up my bases years ago, building is a completely new experience. It took nearly a year to finish my first guitar build, a Strat clone. Lots of mistakes, learning, and gathering of tools. My 11-year-old daughter watched the build and asked for a custom guitar. Oh, that's cool. 
So with her guidance, she chose all the attributes, color, shape, etc. I built a heart-shaped guitar. It looks great, but has some issues. A Gibson fret scale length was used without an angled headstock, and a cheapo GFS top loader bridge was used. And it has a Corian nut. After listening to many of your podcasts, I think it's time to source a bone nut. But the angle from the nut to the tuners is not very steep, which I suppose is part of the problem. After thinking about it, do you think using a Floyd Rose-style string retainer on the headstock would help? What do you think I should do about the bridge? Since the angle of the strings is not very sharp at the bridge, the saddles are not held down very tight against the body. Do you have a suggestion? I truly enjoy the podcast. Melissa is a wonderful addition. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, cool. Thanks, John. Um, he, you know, he sent along some pictures uh, with his question as well, and I looked at him. Um, yeah, yeah, some kind of a string retainer on the headstock makes sense. I don't know if you need to go uh, full bore with a Floyd Rose style string retainer with the the bar that goes across all six, six strings. That might work. Um, you might be able to, you know, if if some strings are worse than others, just get away with maybe putting two string trees on there or something. But something like that seems like it's in order, and you know, that should work just fine. Uh, it's a bolt-on neck, if I remember right. Isn't it? Or did you do a set neck? I don't remember now. Uh, if it, if you bolted it on, probably the thing to do is going to be um, to change the... Put a shim in there and change the neck angle slightly so that you can raise the saddles. You know, just like you'd do on a fender. Uh, if it's a set neck, then you're kind of stuck with what you got there unless you want to do string through body. Um, that would help if you want to modify it to put some kind of a string string through the body bridge on there so that you can get a better angle across your saddles that'll really that'll improve the tone if if there's not enough pressure on those saddles it's it probably sounds uh you know fine but it could have a lot more sustain if things were tight down there. So that is my suggestion. Um, but yeah, cool project. I saw, I saw the pictures and I bet your daughter loves it, man. That's really cool. That's, that's, I love that. that's really awesome. So thanks for the question, John. Next from Ray, I snapped the headstock on a 2001 Les Paul standard. Oh no. It's still connected to the neck, but it's a pretty beefy fracture. From what I've heard, this is not an unusual injury to Les Pauls, or Gibsons for that matter, and it should be as good, if not better than new, or at least stronger than new, once repaired. Has this been your experience? If not, what compromises in playability can I expect after getting it repaired? Here are some rather lo-fi pics of the damage. Oh, and he sent me some pictures. Thanks, Ray. Ray actually brought that guitar to me. It's waiting to be repaired right now. Ray's in Seattle. Uh, you know, people like to say that. I've heard that many times, and I was even dumb enough to say it years ago, that once, you know, a, a, a Gibson with a broken headstock, once it's repaired, it'll be stronger than, than it was before. And really, that's just a dumb thing to say. It's 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 just dumb. Think about it. That's just not the case. I mean, if that were true, uh, they'd come pre-broken. You know, like it's bet like it it's better. It's stronger now because it was broken. And I think the reason people say that is because uh, if you look at a bottle of tight bond, it says on there bond stronger than wood. Well, okay, whatever. But. Um, you know, the glue is just a thin layer. There's still wood all around it that's could easily break. And they, they, you know, I see them. They, they break again on the same fracture if you, if you, if you're not careful. So, just to say that it's going to be better than new, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, come on. Once it's repaired, it, it'll need to be babied. Okay. I mean, just like it needed, it needed to be babied before it broke, right? 
Otherwise, it wouldn't have broken in the first place. The the that headstock. It's. I mean, it's really. I think I said it in the last podcast, but it's that's Gibson's Achilles heel. It's a common thing on a Gibson. Uh, but it's never a good thing, you know. And if it breaks again after you fix it, the second fix is way more involved than the first fix because now you've got a bunch of old glue in there that you have to deal with. So, um, really, the trick is to get it fixed right the first time. I used to use tight bond. I, I, I don't know. I'm just. I don't. Hot hide glue is the, just the way to go, guys. I think on headstock breaks. I really do. Uh, the other thing to consider is this. If you're going to get it fixed, you know, you want to get it fixed sooner rather than later um, because the longer the grain is exposed to air, that that's end grain, right? The more moisture it'll take on, the harder it'll be to get it back together again. So um, he also asked about playability. Um, playability shouldn't be affected at all. I mean, once it's repaired right, it, it, it'll feel and play the same. No difference. But value, uh, it'll definitely affect the value. A Gibson with a repaired headstock is probably worth about 60% of what it what it would have been if it were unbroken. I mean, that's just a rough generalization, but playability should be the same. It's, it's really the value that takes a butt-kicking. I mean, who wants to buy a... A Gibson with a broken headstock, right? <clears throat> no, so th- they get discounted pretty heavily after that. But yeah, but once it's broken, it should be, it should be fine. But you have to baby it. I mean, you have to baby them when they're not broken. So to say that it's going to be stronger than ever and better than before is just more nonsense. I that's just uh, yeah, yeah, just not true. Next question. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Great podcast. I have a vintage Gibson ES330 that has the stock P90 pickups. I love the guitar. I love the tone. I love the pickups. I love everything about it and how it plays, except for the excessive hum that the guitar has. Hmm. I took it to a local tech here, and he basically told me to suck it up and live with it (laughs) because there's nothing that can be done except replace the pickups with humbuckers or stacked P90s and I don't want to do that. Is there anything that can be done to quiet the hum? Any amount of shielding or some other trick that might at least reduce the hum just a little? What can I do? Thanks. That's from Gary in Spokane, Washington. Cool, Gary. Uh... Did you say that's a vintage Gibson 3? Yes, I have a vintage Gibson ES330 that has the stock P90 pickups. Oh, I bet it does sound good. I love those 330s. 330s are so cool. They're they're like 335s except they're hollow and they have P90s. Um Yeah, shielding is not really an option because there's no cavity to shield. It's just a hollow guitar. Uh, and, you know, they're actually, for not being shielded, they're actually uh, shielded pretty well because Gibson uses that braided wire that has a shield on the outside and then the hot wire runs on the inside. So that's really... You know, not something that's feasible and not something that would help much anyway. Um, you can do one. You can do one thing, and this is a mod that I have done in the past for guys, and uh, it won't completely eliminate the hum. But what it will do it was is it'll give you a hum canceling position when your switch is on the middle position. So when you're using both pickups, this will cancel the hum. What you have to do is reverse the phase of one of the pickups. Uh, And on those old P90s, it's not hard to do, and it's reversible, too, so it's it's really not a a big crime or a big sin against the vintage, uh, you know, integrity of the instrument. But in order to do this, what you have to do 
And if you're squeamish about doing this, please take it to a qualified tech. Uh, but what you have to do is you have to take one of the pickups, doesn't matter which one, neck or bridge, and uh, take it out of the guitar, flip it over, take it apart, and um, there are two magnets running alongside the pole pieces on the bottom of that pickup in between the bass plate and the bobbin. Those need to be flipped over so that the magnetic polarity of the pickup is now reversed. So um, it helps if you have a magnetic a polarity tester or even a compass, you know, so that you can see what the magnetic polarity of the pickups uh, is reading before you start. But reverse the magnetic polarity of one of the pickups by flipping the magnets over and disconnect the wires from the pickup and reverse them. So you want the hot wire now going to ground and the ground wire going to hot on a vintage P90, it's easy to do because there's just two little wires coming out of the pickup. One is soldered to a little grounded lug, and then the other one is just twisted off to the hot lead of the, uh, of the pickup wire going to the controls, right? And then covered in masking tape. So it's really easy to flip those two wires. So those are the two things you have to do. You have to flip the magnets, and you have to reverse the uh, the positive and negative wires coming out of the pickup. After you do that, you've reversed the phase and the polarity of one of your pickups. So it's still going to sound the same, except when you're in the middle position on your switch, you'll have no hum. Using only one or the other pickup, you'll still have all the hum you had before. If you're just going to use the bridge pickup or the neck pickup, you'll have hum. But with both pickups on, you'll have no hum, but the pickups will sound in phase. It's just that the, um, the hum is getting canceled and not the sound of the strings. So that's the only suggestion I have for you. And if it sounds too involved, if you don't want to do it, find uh, somebody qualified to do it. Or, you you know, it sounds like you're not too far from me. You're in Spokane, Washington. You, I'm, I'd be happy to do it for you. The only uh, admonition that I would give you is, um, you know, a lot of guys play with their volume controls a lot. Some don't. Some do. If you're one of those guys, uh, both volume controls have to be all the way up in order for that to work. Or at least they have to be in the same spot. Right? Uh, because as soon as you start turning down the volume on one of your pickups, now they're no longer going to cancel the hum. So the, that's the trick. Uh, if you play with your volume controls a lot, then that mod... Isn't either isn't going to help you much, or you'll have to you'll have to uh, reorganize <laughs> how you're uh, how you're going to play the guitar. But um, that's the only advice I have for you. Other than that, P90s are just going to hum. There's just not there's just not a whole lot you can do about it. But that at least would give you one position on the guitar that doesn't hum. So that's my idea. Hope that helps, Gary. Hi, Eric and Melissa. As a proud owner of both a pinup telly and a Strat, I thought it was about time I asked a question on your podcast. Have you ever considered winding a wide-range humbucker for a Telecaster? What makes a wide-range humbucker different from, say, a PAF? Don't get me wrong, your telly pickups are simply amazing. Oh, thank you. But I can't help convincing myself that a pinup telly with either one or two spanky humbuckers could be a perfect match. What say you? That's from Dave. Well, Dave. Uh, those I like those pickups, those wide-range humbucker pickups. They're cool. Um, but they're weird. Those uh, have really specific magnets in them that uh, 
They're called Q-knife or Q-knife. I don't even know how to say it. It's such a rare material. C-U-N-I-F-E, Q-knife. And they're machined. So they're not Alnico, they're Q-knife. And Q-knife stands for, uh, so copper, nickel, and iron, basically. Right? Like Alnico is aluminum, nickel, cobalt. Q-knife or Q-knife is copper, nickel, and iron. And uh, the reason they use that is because it can be machined, uh, where Alnico is too brittle, really, to be machined. So it can be machined into a threaded rod for a pole piece, right? Uh, they were designed by Seth Lovers, you know, the same guy that designed the uh, the humbucker for Gibson in the 50s. Um, the pole pieces are the magnets, right? Just like any other Fender pickup. And unlike Gibson humbuckers, that's why they sound more like a like a fender pickup, right? Uh, the bobbins are, are, are larger than PAFs, and obviously, you know, the covers are too. They're a big, big humbucker pickup. Uh, so it's, it's not something that I could easily replicate. Um, the parts just aren't commercially available. The, that magnet material is just not available. The bobbins, the covers, it's just not something that a, a one-off guy like me is, is going to be able to make uh and nobody's reissues really sound right i mean especially the fender reissues uh, they just use gibson style pole pieces and alnico magnets on the bottom and uh, so you know they only look like wide range humbuckers they don't really sound like one so that cuneef just isn't or however you say it it just isn't available and uh I, yeah there's a few diehard like boutique, you know, pickup manufacturers that they've somehow have obtained some, or at least they claim to. I don't know how, but uh, those pickups are, you know, like four or five hundred bucks a piece. I mean, you know, you might as well just buy originals for that much, right? I'm sure you can do that on eBay. Probably they're probably five hundred bucks. Anyway, it's not something I'm going to venture into anytime soon. But I, I definitely really appreciate the question, and I'm. So glad that you own two pinups. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. This is from Jay-Z. Not that Jay-Z, a different Jay-Z. I really enjoy your podcast and all the knowledge bombs you've been dropping. Hey, all right. I recently purchased a Made in Mexico Baja Telecaster. With the heat running more, the guitar has developed minor fret sprout, and a lot of the fret ends now have a minuscule finish divot where the urethane has cracked and flaked off. It's not as annoying as sharp fret ends, but I can still feel them on some frets. I'm confident with rounding off and smoothing the fret ends, but I'd like your advice on how to address the finish issue before the frets. Thanks in advance. Hope all is well with your newborn. Ah, thank you. Everything is well with the newborn, by the way. Everybody's happy and healthy, and we're even getting a little bit of sleep around here. Things are good. So, uh, as far as um, finish problems on fret ends, uh, on a uh, on a modern uh, polyurethane fender like that, really the trick is um, I would put a dot of super glue where where the finish has, is gone and then sand it and polish it once it dries and it'll be almost invisible. You know, you want to be careful. If you don't, if you're not, uh, if you don't have any experience doing that, you might want to practice on something first, but um, something I've done a lot of finish touch up on on poly guitars with with super glue is is a, a really common thing and it's it's just made for frets i mean it's just perfect for fret ends so um give that a try that's what i would do that's what i'd do with it um once you get you know put a dot on each fret end there where the where the paint divot is and uh you can go and I like to use, um, I get these long, they look like long popsicle stick, uh, but they're sanding sticks that I get at, uh, like, beauty supply store, you know? I go to Sally Beauty Supply or wherever and buy, buy fingernail sanding s- sticks, 
And they always look at me funny when I buy them, but yeah, they don't know what I'm using them for. Um, but those work great for um, doing things like fret ends. And uh, as long as you've got to, as long as you've got to sand the fret, end, fret ends down a little bit anyway, um, you do your your uh, uh, super glue touch up first, and then it'll be piece, a piece of cake. You can just sand down the touch up along with the fret ends, and it should be. Um, it should be golden. No problem. All right, that wraps it up for this episode. I really appreciate uh, all the participation and uh, appreciate your listenership. 20 episodes, two years. I mean, that's pretty cool, you know? I know a lot of podcasts are weekly or monthly or whatever, or daily. We shoot for monthly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, hey... Here's to a lot more. I, I plan on I plan on continuing this podcast, and uh, if anything, it's going to get more frequent. So keep up the participation, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. We'll see you next time.